You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. If you are listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book has a forward by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get unmuted, the book, today. Now let's get into the episode. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Kate Mann. Kate is an assistant professor at the Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University. Her philosophical interests are in social and political philosophy and feminist philosophy. She is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and she is currently working on a new book entitled Empathy. In this episode, we talk about over-sympathy for men, its connection to misogyny, why women are prone to extend what she calls empathy, how to resist it, and so much more. Hello, Kate, and welcome to the Ami Podcast. How are you today? Very well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of it. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And and we are recording this during what people are terming a, what is it, a polar vortex of sorts? So it's like negative yes. how many degrees in, in, in Ithaca? So it's negative 25 Celsius. I'm being Australian. I'm very bad with Fahrenheit, <laughs> but it's negative 25 here and negative 30 with wind chill. I think it was overnight. So. Wow. Wow. So I'm yeah. not I'm not even going to tell you what the temperature here is in, in Riverside, California. So we're just going to keep this interview going. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to ask, but I felt um, envy creeping. So I, I would I say not, I would I say it's going to rain in the next couple of days, if that makes you feel better. It's still well, going to be in the 70s, but it's going to rain. I want the best for you. So I'm just <laughs> when, I'll, I'll be happy for you as well as a little sad for myself in the, in the cold right now. <laughs> Tell me, Kate, I'm interested. How did you get interested in philosophy? Yeah, I love that question. I, I often think this is a case of being attracted to not the right thing, but a right thing for some of the wrong reasons. So to me, it was something I wanted to study in college, I think partly because my dad's best friend is a philosopher and the philosopher Raymond Gaeta. So he uh, is someone I love very much and is a very close family friend. And I think it was one way that in childhood people would express confidence in me intellectually is by saying, that I was very philosophical in the way that I thought or framed questions and would liken me to Ray. So my dad always said he was a much more concrete and uh, political thinker and that my thinking was more abstract and maybe abstruse. And so, yeah, he kind of constructed me in some ways as a little philosopher from a young age, which I I think in retrospect uh, is problematic in all sorts of ways. But I think that that yeah, it, it kind of got me into thinking about something which turned out to be 
something I really love to think about and has actually made it possible to think politically. So even if it was partly constructed as a sort of masculine coded subject that was somewhat uh, recognized above other humanities disciplines in ways it shouldn't have been. I think it, yeah, whatever my own motivations for being attracted to it, it ended up being a good thing. How, how old were you at the time? Five. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that nuts? <laughs> I think it's amazing. So here's the interesting thing. And someone has has mentioned this in the interview that we that we've done this season. Uh, they, they, they mentioned the fact that it's usually at that age that we're all philosophers. That's really interesting. Yeah. So maybe my parents were picking up on something real, but that is very general among children, which is they're philosophically oriented to asking big, deep questions and do have an abstract interest in, um, you know, how to categorize and how to generalize and how social categories work. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And and I guess the the good thing in some ways, as we grow older, we are encouraged not to ask those questions. And I guess the good thing about your experience is that you were encouraged to continue to ask those questions. So I, th- I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a marvelous thing. It's also a quite interesting story. I mean, a lot of stories that I've heard and you've listened to the podcast has a lot to do with encountering philosophy in college. Uh, for several people, they encounter philosophy just by just finding a book. And I just find it interesting that you were able to encounter a philosopher. And it's motivating in some ways, right? As a philosopher, in some ways, I wish someone could tell this kind of similar story <laughs> about me in some way. I mean, I think that's I think that's marvelous. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I would often watch Ray and my father in these deep conversations at dinner parties where they were having these really strenuous disagreements about politics and about aspects of social science or about what to think morally about some issue. And I think it was a great exercise in seeing two people who deeply loved and respected each other really engaged in head-to-head disagreement. And that was a kind of gift that I not only witnessed that, but also there were members of my family who said, you could be like this interlocutor from my father and that was a vote of confidence in ways that were a gift as well as as maybe a little bit silly given I was age five and so I want to congratulate you on first of all on your success on the book and I also want to say thank you for and <laughs> for the book I want to spend this this podcast talking about a concept uh, in the book empathy and word on the street slash internet is that you, you want to think about that a little bit more and write about that a little more in a, in, in a future uh, project. I think that is the case. I hope that is the case. So I, I want to talk about this, this concept of empathy. So and I also think it's very clever and it's just basically spot on to a lot of things that I have experienced as a woman and as I can continue to see in the world. So I guess an important question to start off is what exactly do you mean by empathy? What informs it? And why is it, as you describe in your book, business as usual? Yeah, great questions. So I think of empathy as the disproportionate or inappropriate sympathy, sometimes extended to privileged men over their equally or less privileged female victims in the first instance, and also to some extent female counterparts, something I've been thinking about more lately. So the thought when I say that it's business as usual, is that 
I thought this somewhat tongue-in-cheek label of empathy was a useful way of getting at a problem that far from being rare is almost so ubiquitous that we don't have a name for it because it's the status quo, I think, to extend sympathy in ways that are either disproportionate or inappropriate or both towards privileged men, even when they manifestly don't deserve it because they've actually victimized someone. And I'm particularly thinking in the context of my work of their victimizing more vulnerable women. You know, you talked about kind of over-sympathy. Why is sympathy not just over-sympathy for men, but particularly on your view, it's a, a mirror image of misogyny? Yeah. So that's a really astute question. I think this is one example of one I like being in philosophy because when I came up with my definition of misogyny and was trying to argue that it was paradigmatically about punishing deviant or less privileged women in certain ways for being not conforming to the dominant images of how women should be, it occurred to me that systems of punishment and reward almost invariably work holistically. So I thought to myself almost a priori, well, what would we expect misogyny as a system of punishing non-conforming women be? What would that predict in terms of what we would expect as a mirror image of that when it comes to attitudes towards boys and men on the one hand, and maybe thinking about positive or exonerating or praising or forgiving or sympathetic attitudes as the mirror image of the negative attitudes which girls and women come in for under a misogynist, in a misogynist milieu. There were two coins that were in need of flipping, I thought. One of those coins is, I should say, the morally counterfeit and bankrupt coin of the gender binary. So I don't believe in the gender binary. I think it's deeply pernicious, but nonetheless, the logic of misogyny is deeply invested in this idea that all people are either boys or girls on the one hand or men and women on the other, and that they're, that that's a mutually exhaustive and exclusive partition across persons. So you flip that coin, which, as I, I said, is a morally bankrupt coin. It's just not true. Gender binarism is false and pernicious. But flip the coin to see what follows and flip the coin of negative attitudes extended to girls and women. And what we get is this prediction that if there's a lot of misogyny about, there'll also be a lot of empathy among other things about, including also more general and broad exonerating narratives extended towards privileged boys and men that tend to forgive him for bad or misogynistic behavior. I mean, you, you talk about this notion of, of, of forgiving without giving too much away in conversations that I have with some of my friends. And, and that's why I think it's important to, to name stuff because it allows you to see it and eventually to solve it. But I also, I see empathy in the form of forgiving. I also see, I see empathy in the form of naming behavior, not exactly as it is. So as, so as opposed to saying, oh, this, this man is exhibiting misogynistic behavior. No, he's sick and he needs help, 
right? And so the perpetrator becomes a victim in some in some regard. And he's the one that that we must heal as opposed to responding to the destruction and the wrong that that he's he's done. And it it was just, you know, very insightful. This is one of the reasons I really thank you for 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 the book is that to put a name on that because I have seen it in my life. But to, to see it more recently in adulthood after reading your book and being able to name it just made so much sense and also made me all the more angry. But it, it just made, made, made things all the more sense. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the way in which we look at men. And it seems like I'm going to be kind of sympathetic to those who offer empathy. It seems like trusting, supporting or believing someone we love or thinking someone is innocent until proven guilty is a good thing. So for someone who's suspicious about some of the things that you're saying right now. Tell us, what is the downside of all of what I just said? Yeah, so I should say, in some ways, I think of myself as a recovering empath. (laughs) And (laughs) part of what I'm interested in doing in the book is validating an anger that, for me, took a very long time to build up and feel a sense of entitlement to feel with respect to bad male behavior and I think is often really important to feel. And I think your work has helped illuminate for me so much ways in which that anger can be healing and liberating and essential to doing justice to the victims of the objects of that anger. So when we feel empathy, I think we tend to obscure or erase the female victims of a misogynistic male agent who we're we're so busy feeling bad for him, even though he's the one who's behaved badly, that it often has this effect of obscuring from us who should be the primary object of our concern and moral attention and consideration and who we should be believing. And that is often her over him when we have good evidence that he's committed an act of misogynistic violence or sexual violence or sexual harassment, these prevalent forms of abuse and misogynistic behavior that I think if we fail to call them out under the aegis of empathy, will not do justice to the victims of the behavior. All right. So let's talk about victims a little bit more. How does empathy give rise to victim blaming? Yeah. No, I I think there's this interesting mechanism where if he is the default object of our collective care and consideration, let's say, then we'll often try to identify a but-for cause of his now being blamed or feeling sad or depressed as a result of his being called out on his behavior. And Because of that, because her testifying to his bad behavior turns out to genuinely be the but-for cause of his feeling some negative emotions or having some social consequences of his bad actions, what tends to happen is we then effectively blame her and make him her victim imaginatively as if, so he becomes the victim of his own crimes in a way. And instead of seeing her as entitled to tell the truth and perhaps courageously testifying to something that is, you know, goodness knows often punished for coming forward about when it comes to testifying against particularly privileged men's bad behavior, we see her as dragging his good name through the mud or causing him feelings of pain and humiliation. And I think, 
yeah, that leads to this real um, propensity for victim blaming where she is somehow seen as putting him through these tough times and causing him pain rather than as someone who's warning us about someone who's behaved poorly or telling a truth that it's important for her and other victims or potential victims to tell. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. So let, let's talk, let's look at some concrete examples. Uh, you talk particularly about some high profile cases in your book. And I want to talk about some high profile cases in which we see empathy manifest itself. You mentioned the Brooke Turner case in your book. Can you flesh out the Turner's example for us as well as provide some more recent ones since the release of your book? Yeah. So the Brock Turner case was this then 20-year-old, I believe, Stanford University student who was caught sexually assaulting a young woman on campus after a party. And he was caught in the act by two visiting graduate students from Sweden who caught Brock Turner doing this to the still anonymous female victim and they performed a kind of citizen's arrest called the police and Brock Turner was successfully prosecuted and was found guilty of of sexual assault. But what made the case such an interesting example for me was both the way that everyone from Brock's father to Brock's friends to the judge himself had these very empathetic reactions to the idea that Brock would be punished for, again, being caught in the act of sexual assault and prosecuted and found guilty. So his father said that poor Brock could no longer enjoy a nice ribeye steak fresh off the grill. This Brock's crime had ruined his appetite. Wow. (laughs) Why ought it not have? Right, (laughs) right. And, you know, Brock's friend said Brock is not a rapist and sort of posited incoherently this idea of, of rape without rapists, which, you know, I, I'm often a believer that there can be structural manifestations of, say, racism and misogyny without individual agents. Although I do think we need to be able to call out individual agents who very much do exist as misogynists and as racists. But Rape without rapists is an incoherent idea as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, Brock's Brock's friend, you know, sending the judge a letter saying Brock had always been so caring and considerate towards her. So how could he possibly be a rapist? He didn't seem like a monster. And the judge saying, look, this evidence of his good character just seemed consistent with what, again, all these very sympathetic reactions had accumulated to this portrait of this totally inaccurate portrait of, you know, a young man who, in the words of the father, was being punished for 20 minutes of, quote, action out of 20 years good behavior, which, first of all, he committed a rape. That's, it's extraordinary to emphasize other aspects of his good conduct as if that somehow mitigates what he did. But second, we have good evidence that most or at least a large number of perpetrators are serial offenders. So that seems a very optimistic assessment to hold that this was the only act of sexual assault that Brock either had or or would ever commit. So it just seemed like all these sympathetic responses, instead of focusing on the wrong that Brock had undoubtedly done, it just 
seemed to be in service of exonerating him, forgiving him, and feeling pity and sympathy for him in as much as he was facing consequences for his actions. And I should say, you know, I'm no fan of incarceration. I am very sympathetic to, say, prison abolitionism. But the question in terms of punishment here is, was it consistent with what's doled out to other perpetrators? And I think there's almost no doubt that the fact that Brock is a white perpetrator makes an enormous difference to both how he's perceived and his extraordinarily lenient sentence where he ended up being sentenced to six months in county jail and served just three before getting out on parole. So three months is, again, you know, I'm in no way defending America's atrocious criminal justice or injustice system, but the fact that he was a golden boy who attracted all this sympathy meant he was virtually off the hook for a sexual assault that he was caught performing and found guilty of. So that was pretty shocking. So that was a case that came to light in 2016. And just to circle back um, to the other part of this question that you asked, I, I thought we got another striking example of empathy last year in 2018 during the Brett, Brett Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearing where people like Lindsey Graham, um, instead of being concerned that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was presenting very credible evidence of Brett Kavanaugh having committed sexual assault, instead we had this extraordinarily empathetic reaction where Lindsey Graham says, you're ruining a man's life. And Trump was up in arms about Kavanaugh's reputation being harmed. Again, the question is why ought not it be, given that we have good evidence that this is a man who committed sexual assault, according to the testimony of Blasey Ford, who I believe. It's making me, I want to add another another case onto this, which is going to hopefully complicate things a little bit more. So I want to add R. Kelly, the R. Kelly Recent R. Kelly, well, I'm saying recent because it's been recent uh, attention brought to his behavior. And I'm thinking about race here. And, you know, I always, you know, you mention in the case of Turner, you know, this is a white guy and perhaps his whiteness perhaps had a lot to do with it. And then it makes it makes me stretch, scratch my head in relationship to R. Kelly because he's a black man. It usually doesn't this usually doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And so it also, you know, to, to make it a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more complicated, I think for lots of people, when a black man has made it, it is an achievement because for black people to make it, period, in the midst of, you know, prejudice, oppression and all that stuff is a credit to the race. And so uh, considerations of bringing him down is, is quite serious in some ways. And then there's also, so that's, that's one thing. And I think I see this in very meta levels in regards, I mean, in, in very cases in which we know that there are perhaps child molesters in our families, but we don't want a black man to go to prison. So people are quiet about it. Right. And so I think uh, I'm thinking about how race can complicate things that one is desiring to protect a person given the oppression that they face. But at the same time that they're protecting this person who they may see as vulnerable in the society that, that, that we live in, they're also not protecting another person who is also vulnerable. And I wonder 
if you if you thought about that, if you could give us some insight about what's happened in that particular case and the empathy that you see in that regard. Well, I really appreciate those insights. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I've I've tried recently to think about reframing things more as, well, who are we protecting and who are we there by maybe doing a, an injustice to? So in the case of R. Kelly, his victims being at least predominantly black and brown girls who were and I think ought to be the the prime focus of Tyrannoburg's Me Too movement. You know, that if we if we take these cases, if we're, I think especially, you know, this is a tendency that people in my milieu and people of my genre, you know, I'm a white and exceptionally privileged woman, if we're too hesitant to call out the R. Kellys of the world, we're doing a huge injustice to black and brown girls who are primary among his victims. And so what I've tried to do is is strike a balance because obviously this country has a huge, long, ugly history of white women being both opportunistically exploited, but also themselves playing an active role in taking down black men due to racist and white supremacist social forces that they channel and perpetuate. So on the one hand, one has to be careful of the optics here, but I think of it as how can I channel, say, black and brown girls' interests in what I talk about, what I tweet, what I post, and often that's a matter of amplifying black feminist voices rather than just skating over the R. Kelly cases, which are complicated because they do provide a moment for opportunistic racism to creep in and take down a powerful black man. But I don't think we can afford, you know, on the part of uh, feminists who are white to, I don't think we can afford to not speak out about those cases at, otherwise we risk being white feminists who are so interested in preserving and upholding our kind of moral face a reputation that we're not actually listening to black women or thinking about what the position of, you know, heightened vulnerability that black and brown uh, girls and women face when it comes to sexual violence. So that's how I've tried to think about it. No, I know. I, I think that I think that sounds right. I'm also, you know, it, it's 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 interesting because I hadn't thought about empathy in his case until now. And I've also thought about his solicitation of empathy. There was a song that was released that was very long and basically laying out all the things that he has experienced and him admitting huh, that, interesting. He, that he that he couldn't read, which has been kind of a suspicion in, in the in the music community for a while. And I, I found that to be quite interesting. So not only has he been a person in which empathy has been extended, but even the release of that song, when people got ear that perhaps he had, you know, he's holding women in his house, that he released a song in which is in so many ways a solicitation of the empathy. But yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 still, I'm still working through these things and you see it all, you know, you see it plays out in Twitter because you're, you have the opportunity to listen to diverse voices that are quite different from the way in which you think. Because I think even in my own world, there's an echo chamber. I associate with people whose whose values and beliefs and ways of thinking is quite similar than my own, despite their educational background. But looking at Twitter feeds and seeing comments 
um, allow me to see that people think very differently about that R. Kelly case. And I see empathy being extended for a variety of reasons that I'm just trying to make to make to make sense of. Now, we've mentioned in the case of Turner, you mentioned that women were testifying. I've mentioned in the case of R. Kelly that women are also extending empathy on Twitter, et cetera. And I wonder if you could help us make sense of why women in particular often have empathy. Empathy. Yeah. Well, see, that's really interesting. I think in a way, if you think about misogyny and empathy, not just as mirror images, but as kind of working in tandem, I think there are powerful incentive structures which reward women and incentivize women to be very empathic, nurturing, caring, particularly I think about white women as really just socialized and trained and set up to be incredibly uh, sympathetic to dominant social actors in the form of white men who are powerful. I think it's there's at least a plausible hypothesis that I, I think there's some empirical evidence about, and I'd like to see more, that women are actually, especially white women, can be even worse when it comes to empathy because our um, socialization to be more empathic, which is partly the threat of misogynistic punishment, if we say, hold up, this is not deserving of sympathy or care, it's deserving of a, of a harsher reaction, I think there are a lot of powerful mechanisms that, at least for me, I'm very suspicious of ways in which I tended to be way too prone to be sympathetic towards powerful men instead of being like, no, that's actually that behavior is just really poor and should be called out. And I, I have a feeling it, it does interact with feminine socialization to make empathy at least as bad, if not worse, in women. That makes sense. So let, let's 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 talk to the person who's listening to us, who may have admitted that maybe they have exhibited empathy, but after listening to this conversation, they want to try to try to transform in a certain kind of way. So, let, so these next two questions are, are are very much practical in ways in which I want us to offer tools to listeners. So one is one question is a, a, it's a question of clarification and distinction. So and the other one is a little bit more uh, tool oriented. So. First of all, how can we know the difference between exercise and empathy and extending love and support? Mm-hmm. And that's such a good question. And I don't have a really good answer for it. I think often it's going to be case by case and context specific. I think one general guideline, and this kind of interacts with your great question about practical tools people can employ to ask, well, you know, am I doing this right or am I am I at least making progress in being a empath? I think asking who I might be betraying by being sympathetic or compassionate as my dominant reaction to someone who has behaved poorly rather than calling them out in some way, that is one guideline that I try to employ. Like if it's a so-called he said, she said scenario, where often it's actually a he said, she said, she said, she said. But at any rate, if I'm believing him or believing in him, am I simultaneously believing that she's a liar or at least remaining agnostic as to whether or not she's telling the truth? And that doesn't settle things, but it's a helpful question to ask. Whereas if someone is just in trouble and they're a man and they haven't victimized anyone, then I'm actually a fan of sympathy and loving support. I think those are feminine coded goods that 
are not something that we should be too reluctant to meet out. I think they do count as forms of emotional labor, but at the same time, if it's reciprocal, then I'm a big fan of asking for sympathy, giving sympathy freely. Like, say if someone's sick, you know, you know how sometimes people say I'm not looking for sympathy, but they post something on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. right, right. And it's like, I think looking for sympathy is fine if it's in the right way at the right time to the right people, namely not demanding emotional labor from people you're then effectively leaning down on. But if it's like a kind of drive by, like, I, sorry, I shouldn't say drive by, but like if it's a like quick, like thrown out tweet or like Facebook post that's just like a venting of a need, a need for compassion or support from your community and that prevents you like festering in ways that can be unhealthy. And I think it's actually fine to both ask for sympathy and give sympathy freely when it's not at the expense of a potential victim who might be then betrayed in effect by a sympathetic reaction to someone who's in pain because they've done something wrong as opposed to someone who's just in pain. Does that make sense as like a rough guideline as to... That makes sense. I mean, my second question is very much connected to to the first and I, and I wonder how you'll flesh this out. So can you give us some tools, some things to think about, et cetera, in order to resist it? So, so perhaps I recognize, hey, I have a tendency to do this. But misogyny is a hell of a drug. So how can I, <laughs> so, so how can I resist? And the consequences for, for resisting misogyny is also um, a hell of a deterrent. Um, so, so how can, if, if a person recognizes that they have extended empathy in their life, have a tendency to do it, how, what can they do? How can they, how can they resist it? Yeah, so this is a question I ask myself a lot, and I love the question, and I wish I had a better and more complete <laughs> answer to it. But one thing that has helped me is thinking about, is this, so thinking about my reactions, well, first of all, I do think it helps to name the problem. So sometimes what would have stopped me from being more circumspect in my emotional responses or social responses is the prospect of shame or guilt. If I don't show immediate, you know, like visceral empathy for someone who I actually want to reserve judgment about whether that's the right response at the right time. So thinking about, am I being empathetic has helped me in my own life to be a little bit more reflective about when I extend sympathetic reactions and when I think, okay, um, not so much. And the other thing I do think is focusing on girls and women. So focusing on, say, the victims who might otherwise be somewhat erased or dismissed as a result of empathy. And I should say, this isn't to say that we shouldn't also be just as morally concerned with boys and men when they're victims of similar crimes. Of course we should. But I do think, at least in my milieu, sometimes girls and women, especially more vulnerable girls and women go under the radar in a way that makes it helpful to adjust your focus and kind of center on girls and women, especially if they're in more vulnerable positions in being also victims of certain forms of racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, or ageism, to reorient and to think, well, who's the primary deserving recipient of my sympathy or concern or moral attention, that can just temper the empathy. 
And sometimes there's still room for sympathy, even to perpetrators, for sure. But if your primary focus is on victims, then I do think that helps somewhat just make the one's moral reactions more equitable in ways in which they might, for me at least, otherwise be biased in the direction of powerful men. So so your book, Girl Down, The Logic of Misogyny, has come out and there's been responses to it. As I just praise you for the book, there's also been very different responses um, um, to your book or different reactions to your book. And I, I wonder if we can get a little personal here. Can, can you tell us tell us one surprising negative response, kind of response, one surprising positive response you have experienced since the release of your book? And what have you learned from both? Yeah, I love that question. So I thought I would get killed for writing this book. I I mean, in retrospect, it seems a little overly dramatic, but when I write and, you know, I'm curious, you know, if this resonates at all with your experience writing for popular outlets, when I've written for so-called public philosophy for venues beyond academia, I found a huge amount of negativity often, often my inbox is just this morass of hatred and Funnily enough, writing the book has been overwhelmingly positive in terms of the reactions I get. I think because a book just requires more investment of time, money, and engagement. So the thing that has come as this beautiful surprise and that I'm so infinitely grateful for is, you know, most days um, I'll get at least one email of a reader who's gotten something out of the book and who, you know, they might agree or disagree, but who will send me an email engaging with the text or thanking me for some concept or, and that's like, that's been such a gift and so humbling and such a relief because other forms of barely accessible writing that I've done have, it feels like there's generally more negativity than positivity. And so that's been and wonderful. And I think it made me realize that despite my pessimism that I record both in the book and that I feel temperamentally about you know, political life and political discourse. I'm very, I don't feel a huge amount of hope, but I do feel in non-monolithic ways, just pockets of inspiration, people who are open-minded and who send me emails about things they're doing in their lives to make the world better. And I find that hugely inspiring and, and just a relief that it's not, I think, that we're all in this together. It's that some of us are in this and we are together and it's a battle and it's a struggle and I don't know that we'll win, which is terrifying. But there, are, I think, are more people than I knew or than, and this includes dominantly situated men who really committed to making the world less horribly unjust and who are willing to read and think and part of what I think of as as my thing in life, which is, yeah, trying to understand why things go so badly wrong with a view to correcting problems that I think many of us participate in and that aren't a matter of purifying your soul of, but are a matter of, well, how moving forward can we make things better? And yeah, so that's honestly, uh, that's been really the coolest thing about bringing out the book is 
having more contact with people like that. Although I should say, I feel like I, I've given up on email as a, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I just, I'm constantly so overwhelmed by my inbox that I'm the worst correspondent and I feel in this perpetual state of anxious. So that that's the big negative thing. I, I feel like I'm so bad at responding to the emails, partly because they mean so much to me that then I feel humbled and don't know exactly how to respond. And so perfection becomes the enemy of the adequate. And I, I feel like I um, am always behind in expressing that gratitude. So this is a, a sort of generic attempt to say, um, yeah, I feel this immense gratitude. And it's been a huge surprise that people haven't been more hostile. Mm, that's wonderful, wonderful to hear. So writing public, writing philosophy is hard. Writing public philosophy is also quite hard. And you have done both in book form and in op-eds. Is there any advice that you can give to academics who desire to write for the public? Yeah, I I really want to hear your answer to this. I want to uh, ask (laughs) you this great question. But the one piece of advice I guess I would have is figure out exactly what you want to say and separate order of justification from order of discovery. So often the order of discovery will involve a million touchstones and it will be much more indirect and circuitous and hard to understand. But the actual what emerges, the discovery of the scholarship is quite simple and can be stated quite plainly. And so when you throw out the scaffolding and how you got there, I think there's this really wrongheaded thought that if it's put out and laid out simply and cleanly, that that didn't require expertise or real scholarly chops to come up with. And I would encourage people to to get away from that assumption because the simpler and more accessible you make it, first of all, the more people will read it. And second, um, that often means you just understand it better and your insight is more pithy and well formulated, not that there's like less chops that went into it. So does that make sense as a way yeah. of thinking about, yeah, like throwing out scaffolding? Yeah, that makes sense. I um, I think there's an assumption that to write clearly is easy and it doesn't take, like you said, doesn't take much expertise or a much kind of uh, writing, writing ability. And I think the more that I get entrenched in the academy and writing in ways in which is required of us. When I return to my public writing, it becomes more difficult. And to be clear is a skill. And it's also a skill of genius, to be honest. Um, and Absolutely. I, I, you I, have that genius. Oh, well, you well so thank have you. That you have that genius. genius. But, but to Aww. do it every time I approach it, it's, it's more difficult than the last time. I don't know. I, I think mm-hmm. it's because I'm, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm the requirements of tenure and just all the things I now have to do much more balancing the two and having to go back and forth to the two. I think what I'm finding is that the public philosophy is getting harder, which mm-hmm. allows me to appreciate the skill set much so much more. But yes, yeah, so I, I think to, to write clearly is an act of genius. And and I think you're, you're totally right about the about the discovery. I think what, what I'm learning and also just looking at models of the way in which journalists have done it and, and people that writers that I admire and continue to read them to see what they're doing that's still attracting me to their work and is still allowing it to grab me. 
and mm-hmm. basically stealing those things and those strategies from them is keeping me on the the path of good public writing. For for a lot of people, I mean, I don't want to I want to use an example, but I can't. It's a contest in which I'm judging. But I, I find that as academics, uh, it's easy for us to be academics, and it's so much difficult for us to come out of that. And so, I think the advice that I would give is, how would you talk during Christmas or during the holidays to a relative? And that's usually what I'm thinking about if I'm having a conversation with a student, if I'm, if I'm having a conversation with my sister and I want to convey these particular ideas, how can I do that in a way that would keep their keep their attention? I also think, and you tell me if, if this is the case for you, I also think that doing public talks continue to help me be a better public writer because the way in which I prepare talks for academia or for a particular group who does exactly what I do is not the same strategies that I can use when I'm talking to a more general academic audience, let alone a general, a general public audience. So I think having to use those kind of presentation strategies and, and remixing that has helped me to, has helped my writing so much more. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm sure that's right. And I like, the talking to a relative at Christmas advice, especially, I often tell my students, and I try to practice this as much as I can, try to write stuff that you are trying to make into, say, a lucid, like long or short form essay style, which should be most things, you know, I try to teach students to to write fairly accessibly, but try to imagine like writing it in an email to someone who you want to communicate with. Like so much of academia feels to me obscurantist in its style and tenor, and it's almost designed to keep the reader at arm's length. But so I often would do this, I would write emails to my editors in you know various different domains and it would me- it would be then explicitly an act of communication and not meant to be standing on ceremony not meant to be impressive in any way but really just meant to like dig into well what do I want to try to say to someone who's open-minded and sympathetic but who's not yet convinced or who may disagree in this this way or um, this other way that I can anticipate without being super defensive and I guess that sort of segues to my other piece of advice is find editors you work well with and trust your editors because I mean I know this varies for different people, but I find my work is so much better after good editing. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just love editors. And I think academics, I think it can be a little bit weirdly snooty about having their words change. And I'm certainly not above that. Like sometimes I have a particular rhythm of a sentence and then I'm a pain in the ass about changing it. <laughs> but I, I do think that, that, that a good editor who, of whom I've had many and, you know, really just honored to be working with and to have worked with, it makes such a difference to making the prose for me something that I can share. And that is that direct communicative act rather than something that holds the reader at arm's length and has, yeah, more words in it that needs to communicate the idea. Okay, I, I can I can probably talk to you for another hour or so, but Oh, I feel but, so the same way. <laughs> but 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 thank you so much for coming on. I really I really enjoyed this conversation. I know it was it was it was very useful and helpful to, to listeners. Oh well, so my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of your work. Likewise, and podcast. So it was um, just a, a real joy. So thank you for having me on. 
For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.